In this podcast, we're going to explain where the core principles of integrated healthcare models come from and what they mean for the healthcare and life science industries. We have to dramatically improve the value. And value uh, is defined as the patient health outcomes achieved relative to the amount of money spent to achieve those outcomes. Michael Porter, Harvard Business School, 2012. You have to really go back to your original business model of what is the NHS there for? And the NHS is there essentially, it's evolved over decades as a sort of rescue service. It's not really a health service, it's, it's an illness service. And we pick up the pieces where we fail to maintain and preserve and protect health. And actually the biggest thing we could do is to make the NHS smaller. Dr. David Pension, Director of the Sustainable Development Unit, 2020. The concepts behind integrated care have come up numerous times under different names. Patient-centric care, decentralised healthcare, sustainable healthcare. All of these theories share the same founding principles, that the healthcare and life science sectors must evolve to meet the needs of an increasingly complex health ecosystem. We wanted to understand why this belief was so widespread, what problems experts believe need to be solved, and ultimately, what integrated health systems can do to help. But research isn't enough for a topic as nuanced as this. So we sat down with two experienced advisors who work within the healthcare and life science sectors and have informed perspectives about the context surrounding integrated care, as well as the mechanics and key players involved with making it a reality. The first of these experts is Paul Sims. Paul is well known within the industry as the former chairman and CEO of IFA Pharma, now Reuters Events Pharma, a notable publication and events hub for pharma executives globally. In recent years, he has moved on to serve as an advisor for numerous agencies in the industry, working as a pharma provocateur who has takes pride in spurring the industry on to embrace cutting edge change. Paul, you've been around for a great deal of um, pharma's recent transformations. Uh, you've been involved in thought leadership from every part of the value chain, from drug development to customer centricity. Where have you come across the concept of integrated care? Uh, it might surprise you um, to hear that I believe that the seeds of this were being sown when I first entered the industry, which is the early 2000s, actually. And back then, the conversation was very much around the arms race, as it used to be known, which sounds terrible. We didn't do ourselves any favours, did we? Um, it was also the time, though, that digitization was starting to be organised uh, in a sensible way. The initial dot-com boom had faded away, and we were, I guess, reaching that plateau of productivity where some more sensible solutions were beginning to come in. Uh, and uh, and uh, and there was a focus on not just e-detailing, which was the, the, the phrase at the time, re effectively replacing a lot of that sales and marketing effort with the digital equivalent, but actually trying to use digital technologies to go a little bit further and change the, the model. Of course, it took a good decade before we actually saw the, the needle being moved. But I would say that the, the, uh, the grounding for what was at first perhaps called beyond the pill and perhaps then uh, thought of a little bit more comprehensively with an understanding of health systems, et cetera. Uh, integrated care and sustainable health care definitely um, uh, gathered pace over the last uh, five years or so. Why is this so important for the life science industry to invest in this transformation? 
I'd say it's a mixture of two things. It's a, a mixture of um, awareness, if I can call it that, from the from the patient. Uh, I think that the the COVID situation has shown us as individuals how utterly inefficient the traditional system is, how uh, utterly useless we are at actually controlling our own healthcare, and how utterly different disenfranchised the industry has been with healthcare in the past. And I think for the first time we're seeing. Uh, the public at large, if I can call it that, the population actually wanting to drive something proactive rather than reactive when it comes to healthcare systems, pivoting towards at least early detection, if not prevention in the system, uh, and therefore funding things differently. Uh, but I am genuinely starting to see the green shoots, not everywhere, only in, in a few companies. Um, there are obviously front runners like the world of cell and gene therapy, where we're moving towards treatments rather than simple drugs, which necessitates a far more holistic approach and a far more partnership and, and, and comprehensive based approach. There isn't really even a, a drug per se in that treatment regimen, in those treatment regimens. So um, absolutely, it's coming to the fore. They're punchy words, but the state of affairs that Paul refers to is of real concern. Public spending on healthcare as a proportion of GDP is rising significantly, as the growth in the cost of healthcare is projected to be double the growth in GDP for OECD countries. Projected increases in healthcare spending in some countries are so large that significant cuts in other government programs may not be enough to bear the burden of delivering this care. In such scenarios, patients will experience decreasing quality of services and decreasing access to those services, creating significant health inequality. A report from the OECD on the fiscal sustainability of health systems states that the health systems we enjoy today and expected medical advances in the future will be difficult to finance from public resources without major reform. The second person I had the pleasure to sit down with is Dr. Diane Bell. Diane takes the meaning of done it all to a new level with her career. After training and practicing as a hospital physician in the NHS, she turned her hand to public health strategy, working for a number of strategic bodies within the NHS. She now operates as a freelance advisor, advising her clients on anything and everything from patient support programs to payer strategies. Diane, you've worked as a doctor, you've designed strategy for a number of NHS commissioning bodies, and you're now operating as a freelance advisor for healthcare and pharma alike. I can't think of someone better place to answer this question. Why is care so expensive at the moment? I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is that, quite frankly, the population is growing and the average age is getting older. People are living longer. So one of the reasons why cost is so expensive is because we're getting better at it. Uh, the other reason, I think, is because not only are we, do we have more people to treat and we're treating them better, but we have more uh, drugs, more tools in our armory. Research is improving as well, so we know more about what we can do to keep people alive. Um, and that's not just people with long-term conditions, but also children, infants as well, uh, who are living now when they would never have lived decades ago. So it's a combination of more people, more people living for longer, and more things that we can do with them. So it's a good problem to have, but it's a problem nonetheless. As life expectancies shoot up, so do the prevalence of chronic diseases, and the burden on healthcare increases exponentially. The treatment of chronic diseases differs hugely from standard care. Instead of a progressing series of appointments, diagnoses, and procedures, 
chronic treatment instead requires regular check-ins, medication, and management for extremely long periods of time, and these requirements come with a significant cost for the systems that bear them. Currently, traditional healthcare structures are built around delivering high-tech, low-frequency levels of care in centralized, specialized centers. Chronic conditions, meanwhile, require medium-tech, high-frequency care delivered through decentralized locations, which reduces travel time for patients and spreads the burden of patient care across a network of treating clinics. The use of data to effectively triage and evaluate required interventions can support such a system to exist sustainably, but require major investment in diagnostic technologies and underpinning structures to do so. Having worked on both sides, both industries, where do you see the gaps in the way that pharma interacts with healthcare at present? I think that pharma has had a very traditional approach of here is a, an intervention, whether it be a new drug or a new device, that will make your clinical life easier and deliver something good for your patients. But what they've not been very savvy about is building the, the kind of rounder business case. So they've, they've taken a very patient or clinician-centric approach without going, well, how does this actually affect the, the clinical team? How does this affect the specialty? How does this affect the whole patient journey and all the different agencies that are involved in, in, in playing in that journey? And so I think that's the space that pharma need, needs now to fill. And they have tried doing that in the past, but... It, it's been a mismatch between the financial incentives, the clinical incentives, and the angle or perspective that pharma's come in at. I think the big question is, for those pharma companies looking to invest in this space, how open are healthcare systems and structures to partnering on this sort of transformation? There are growing um, growing parts of even single-payer tax-funded systems where the, the natural distrust of pharma is starting to break down because people can see that this is a, a symbiotic relationship, that there's, there's, there's things to be gained from both sides. In health systems where perhaps there's a better or a greater mix of for-profit with not-for-profit, then I think those, that, that distrust uh, isn't so great or is manifested in a different way. And I, but I think the essence of how you build integrated models of care comes down to building trust between partners and in many ways getting all of these cards on the table up front. Something that Diane speaks about there is trust between partners and transparency. This is more relevant than ever as pharma pipelines and portfolios become increasingly competitive, sitting among a number of alternative treatments and therapies. Without distinguishing features or additional value propositions, medicines facing competition will suffer greatly in an environment of decreased drug spend. Investment in differentiation is pertinent, and it has to be done in line with healthcare systems changing priorities. Ultimately, both healthcare and the life sciences industry run the risk of committing to diverging priorities and letting patient care fall through the gaps. Integrated healthcare models are an opportunity for the two behemoth industries to work together to tap into previously unrealized benefits, share expertise, and in doing so, drive drastically improved care for patients. The challenge remains for life sciences companies to take a step back and reimagine their role for improving patient outcomes from a wider standpoint than they have traditionally seen, free from legacy thinking and with a passion to overhaul the future of healthcare. Having established the macro challenges that healthcare and pharma are facing, the beauty of integrated care then lies in 
how neatly it serves as a solution to those challenges. We specifically want to focus on the people who are the most vulnerable in society and indeed the people who get a very poor experience because uh, care services are poorly coordinated around their needs. What is the care experience of the individuals themselves, their carers and their families? That was Nick Goodwin, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund Research Group, about why integrated care is a crucial step in modernising the care experiences delivered by healthcare systems. So, to illustrate that, let's look at a theoretical integrated care model and walk through its various elements which drive success for healthcare, pharma, and most importantly, patients. Imagine a patient, Oren. Oren has just turned 56 and has lived largely on a diet of steak, potato, and wine for most of his life. He starts to notice pain in his chest one day when he's playing squash, and after a few days of the pain persisting, decides to contact the emergency line. Immediately, they get Oren to attend a local diagnostic center, where they quickly run an ECG and a peptide blood test. The results of this show that an echocardiogram is needed, and so they book that in and a specialist appointment for the week after. In the meantime, Oren is supplied a fitness tracker to monitor his heart rate, blood oxygen, and other key metrics. While Oren is home and between tests, his specialist has the ability to look through all of his captured data, both in and out of the hospital, and use that information to prepare her assessment. Next week, after having his echo, Oren visits the specialist. She had already recognized the symptoms and biomarkers of chronic heart disease and diagnosed Oren accordingly. She lays out a prepared and tailored care plan for Oren, which is saved on the same app that he downloaded to keep track of his other appointment bookings. When Oren goes home, he browses the app, which explains the medications he's been prescribed, when to take them, the exercises he needs to do day to day, and what health data they'll be tracking. For example, a self-filled questionnaire Oren has to do every other week. There are also guides about what to expect and what not to expect, so Oren knows when a symptom is part of recovery or something to call hospital about. Finally, there are links to community centers with classes especially for patients like Oren, and guides for the various other nuances of managing a condition like this. If Oren's measurements or biomarkers show signs of his condition getting worse, an alert will be flagged to Oren suggesting the nearest outpatient center where Oren can be assessed, tested, and interventions taken if appropriate. We're going to take a deep breath now because that was a lot. It isn't until you look end to end at what patients actually need to go through from symptom through to a controlled disease that you realize exactly how much they have to manage, let alone their families and loved ones. So the journey I just described is very patient focused. What role do you imagine pharma could play to make a journey like that a reality? I think there's a number of uh, areas that the uh, pharma company could play. One is in um, creating some of the infrastructure. So in creating some of the soft, uh, you know, or, or funding the creation of some of the software algorithms that could help track patients efficiently, effectively, and make sure that red flag signals are being picked up, um, but there isn't too much noise in the system. Um, so there's that sort of approach. There's testing and trialing some of the wearables, some of the technology that sits behind it as well. So putting funding in to support the evidence base that will drive some of this creation, um, because this is not the sort of stuff that necessarily a healthcare system can afford to fund itself in terms of the research. 
what do you think the healthcare systems are looking for in the ideal partner from pharma companies? Um, so there's sort of practical things uh, and then there's how you approach it. Um, so starting with the practical things, I think uh, the pharmaco having a good understanding of the cohort of patients, the patient needs, the patient journey that the patient goes through, as well as the clinical journey that, that the traditional health system would take the patient on, uh, and understanding where some of the bottlenecks or gaps or pain points are. So really um, understanding it and to having done the legwork to, to find the points of pressure that they can then come to the health system with and say, we can help you here. Um, so that's the sort of where, where I think they can, where they can approach it. I think how they approach it is in a sense of, um, that, of, of almost reframing what it is that pharmacos offer these days, that they're not the pills and potions people anymore, that they're now the solutions people. So this whole thing is about, we see you have a problem here. We see that this problem is manifested in these issues for clinicians and patients and the system. We think we can we can help you be innovative and creative and how to solve those problems. And in doing so, yes, it may be that we are able to use a, a drug or a technology that that we have, but actually it may be we don't use that. And the advantages there for Pharmaco is that not you know it may seem a bit grand and, and broad sweeping, but when it comes to their drug being used, they can be confident that it's being used in a, in a cadre or a group of patients who are most likely to benefit from it, um, which makes the overall value of that drug go up. The benefits of this care delivery model to patients are easy to see. Faster, more personalised care, which they don't have to travel far to access. Care decided based on outcomes which matter to them, like quality of life, and delivered in a way that is respectful of their needs. But... As Diane points out, it's when we look at the benefits to life sciences and healthcare that things get interesting, because this is not just a utopia, but rather a very achievable vision, which, if implemented correctly, could actually create capacity within the system. We're now going to look at some of the nuances that would drive the success of this model, which aren't as visible from the patient perspective, but absolutely critical to success. We need to begin where the change will come from. Healthcare doesn't have the capacity to drive major structural changes like this without the partnership of the life sciences industry. And so we have to look at what that looks like and why key industry figures should be racing towards this reality. What do you think are the risks facing pharma if pharmacos don't embrace this change? Pharmaceutical companies are effectively simply rendering themselves as suppliers if they don't take this, particularly in the face of large technology companies and startups beginning to own the customer and the customer relationship far more and more. Pharma companies have to um, be a part of this equation and they only will do if they make this change. We talk about changing the way we go to market all the time. What does that actually mean in this context? GMs exist for the very reason that they should be responsive to local need. You know, there are some companies, some industries that don't employ GMs because that local need isn't so strong. Pharma is not one of them. Our healthcare systems are very strong and almost without fail, health systems, in order to save their own money, are pivoting towards more preventative uh, models. Um, they are also requiring uh, a lot of assistance in going forward and are probably more open than they ever have been for various forms of stratified healthcare, which will inevitably involve 
various forms of industry taking responsibility for various actions. I was talking um, with the managing director of a, a large pharma company just this very morning about uh, how his belief is that within three or four years, he won't be employing any more sales reps at all um, because the uh, re requirements for the NHS are, lend themselves far more to a more partnership model and far more to an integrated care model. Paul is talking about a massive change in how pharmaceutical companies structure the teams they deploy to work with healthcare. And it's already starting to happen in some major pharma companies. They have recognized that by aligning their go-to-market model with healthcare's priorities, life sciences companies can broaden their role across the patient journey. What does that actually mean? It means that they have the ability to get involved at more points within the patient care pathway beyond just treatments. This could look like support with diagnostic pathways for diseases that are rarer or require more longitudinal analyses for detection, for example, lupus, which often appears as a series of unrelated but non-hospitalizing symptoms. But it could just as likely be the development of cheap and rapid point-of-care or at-home testing tools. More ambitious interventions would be services such as patient support programs, or PSPs, which provide a blanket of services to support chronic disease patients from the point of diagnosis and treatment through to management of the disease. Transformation to integrate life science healthcare resources and support their burdens will innovate the way that the life science industry delivers value to patients. Much as CAR-T and gene therapies have allowed us to control how treatments behave within the human body, Integrated Care sets up life science companies to control and measure the success of their interventions, creating a dramatically different relationship with patients and healthcare. There are two main benefits to be realized as part of this change. Both center on giving life science companies more agency. The first of these benefits, and the most fundamental, is that sustainable healthcare is the key to unlocking true innovation in the financial relationships between life science and healthcare. Value-based agreements, outcomes agreements, risk sharing, these are terms which have done their rounds in the industry, but ultimately fail to find traction. A lack of trust and in infrastructure has prevented parties from being confident that data regarding health outcomes could be captured with enough sophistication to inform large-scale remuneration deals. By integrating their resources into the delivery of care, life science companies can develop suitable infrastructure to capture outcomes that matter to patients, that is, quality of life and disease control, rather than opaque peptide concentrations or cardiac measurements, with trust from healthcare about the data's integrity. This data can then inform legitimately outcomes-based agreements, where up-to-date, relevant outcomes drive the remuneration to life science companies. Those same companies can then have a way to dynamically affect their revenue streams by increasing the quality of the products and services they deliver to treat patients. This solution allows life science companies to have more control over their revenue streams while delivering greater value to patients. What do you see as the potential benefit of this in terms of creating a more flexible or dynamic pricing environment? So I think we start to move away from price per 
drug, price per pill, um, to price per outcome achieved. Um, and I think that applies to both pharma and the healthcare systems in general. By focusing on the so what question, so what benefit has any of this brought to a patient, you start to really change the currency in which you work uh, away from the amount of things done or the amount of drugs bought to the impact and benefit that those interventions and, and medications have brought. It is more difficult because it's easy to count pills and it's not necessarily easy to count, uh, to count patient or clinical outcomes, but it's not impossible. And it's a growing body of evidence that proves that it can be done and can be done in a way that means that the limited finances we've talked about before go further and provide more benefit to more patients. A key ingredient of this new pricing environment is the second benefit of integrated care. As a result of this transformation, product management will no longer stop at launch. Instead, life science companies will be able to continuously refine and improve the delivery of their products within the system after launch. By delivering services within the healthcare environment, life science companies can set up their patients for success with their products. Rather than leaving healthcare to guide patients on using medicines and patients to try them, life science companies can help patients with effective medicine delivery, positive health practices around the medicines administration, and wider support to improve the effect on health outcomes. Most healthcare systems in most countries are still not so much health systems as treatment systems. Um, and we know there's been lots of evidence to show that, that treatments are much more successful if patients are in the right frame of mind to not just receive the treatment, but to understand it and to get involved in, the, in whatever treatment uh, approach is taken. So I think that one of the areas that we've seen farmers start to play in, and I think they could play in a lot more, is that sort of softer side, the non-clinical, the non-directly medical side of it, if you like, thinking more about patient activation, patient empowerment, self-esteem, and that nurturing and coaching approach that in the long run helps everyone, but also helps pharma because it improves the patient's adherence and uh, persistence on medications. For an example of what Diana's talking about here, let's look at a fictional patient who is prescribed on a regular injected treatment. Patients deviate from treatment regimes. They feel side effects are overwhelming. They ignore medical guidance around diet and exercise. Life is messy. A good support system can ensure that patients stick to their treatment regime, help manage and work through side effects, and give reactive, personalized guidance around lifestyle. All of these factors will help patients stay healthy and observe better outcomes on treatment. This will be a huge factor in guaranteeing the success of life science products, creating superior real-life efficacy profiles and, as we discussed earlier, result in increased revenue streams for life science companies. Are you optimistic that a model like this can find success? I am optimistic, but it is dependent entirely on whether pharmaceutical executives are willing to not focus on the experience of the past 20 years and focus more on the ingenuity of the next 20 years and consider those outside of R&D to be the innovators as opposed to just those within R&D going forward. Having detailed the transformation we can expect to see in the life science industry, what does the healthcare system look like as a result? One thing's for certain, it will be noticeably different from the healthcare experience of today. The ultimate benefit of integrated care models for healthcare systems is alleviating the burden of the full care pathway, allowing resources to be concentrated on delivering the sections of the care pathway that healthcare was set up for with greater flexibility and efficacy. So 
how does this model help reduce the burden of the full care pathway? We discussed earlier how integrated healthcare models broaden the role of life science across the patient journey. They allow for life science companies to provide supports across the board from diagnosis through to disease maintenance around areas which healthcare has neither the time nor the capability to fully deliver. In the previous section, we explored what these solutions could look like. Innovations in diagnosis technology will remove the burden on primary care physicians to recognize complex and specific rare diseases early in care pathways. Meanwhile, investments in testing equipment will tackle emergency care blockages and help to keep patients out of hospitals. We also discussed the implementation of broader, around-the-pill, clinical interventions such as patient support programs, allowing for relieved burden on the healthcare system and reduced expectations of assigned physicians to be carer, dietitian, therapist, and more for millions of patients. Such solutions allow physicians to check in with a regular but intermittent cadence using data generated from patient programs and patients' own taught self-management abilities to drive a productive and effective physician-patient conversation. The use of data and at-home testing also allows for patients and physicians alike to have more warning about potential dips in health which would put patients at risk of hospitalization, allowing for suitable interventions to be delivered as soon as possible. Beyond just adjusting remits, integrated healthcare models also take a look at the delivery of healthcare and how that can be streamlined through decentralization. Flexible healthcare models use local centers and advanced point of care testing to keep more patients out of hospitals and to streamline the care pathway from primary to secondary care. In lay people's terms, this means fewer people in A&E, fewer backlogs for key testing, and a more manageable pipeline of patients within secondary care. Additionally, the decentralized delivery of care would facilitate a reduction in the number of people in hospitals, which is a win for everyone, as it reduces cost, patient density, and even the risk of hospital-acquired infections. So what's the most exciting thing that you feel can come about as a result of this change? So I've built an integrated care system. I've made the money stack up. I've aligned the financial incentives and I've measured and seen what happens to clinicians and patients as a result. And it's, it's brilliant. So for clinicians, they see patients who all of a sudden feel like they understand what's happening to them, feel like they can have a conversation with the clinician and actually make informed decisions about their go care going forward. For patients, they feel, um, they feel important, they feel that they're being listened to and they feel valued. Um, and for the payer system as well, we find that we were able to live within a budget that, that before was unaffordable. And after this, because we were using money in a different way and being able to show the, the real benefits, actually we could live within our means. What would you say to any GM or pharma executive who's looking to take their first step on this sort of journey? Forget everything you know. Uh, it's probably a good start. Not exactly what someone wants to hear. They're usually in that position as a result of experience and knowing how to do things well. But in general, the advice I would give to survive in a post-pandemic world is to not allow your experience to guide you. The fact is that the world has changed. Um, it should be recognized as people wanting to change if not changed yet. And simply to um, be willing to redraw the boundaries of the playing field.
The more people we speak to within this space, the more we understand that integrated care is not a single model or framework, but rather a set of principles guiding how pharmaceutical companies and healthcare systems must work together to generate the best outcomes for patients at the lowest cost to society. What's more, it's clear that key players across the globe are increasingly bought into these principles and ready to invest in them. Our team at Penn are actively facilitating a number of conversations in senior healthcare and pharma environments across the globe and are well-placed to be a key partner in shepherding our clients through this transformation. Thank you very much to Paul Sims and Dr. Diane Bell for their time and their insights. Reach out if you want to know more. We're here to help and you can read more of our articles and guidance on this subject on our website. I've been Srinivas Anakindi with Penn's Second Opinion. Good day. Thank you.